Hi, this is Rabbi Deborah Waxman. Thanks so much for listening to Hashivenu. I want to let you know that this episode is slightly different from most of our episodes. It's a conversation with my childhood rabbi, Rabbi Philip Lazowski. He's a really wonderful man, and he's a Holocaust survivor. We recorded this episode to commemorate Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. Rabbi Lazowski's story truly embodies resilience, and it's a hard story. It's full of loss and even horror. So first, a warning that some of what he talks about is not appropriate for young children. And we made a decision here at Reconstructing Judaism not to cut his story short. So while most of our episodes are about 25 minutes long, this one is longer. It's about 43 minutes. This won't be our habit, but we thought it appropriate in this instance. And I want to give you the heads up to listen, especially for Mrs. Rabinowitz, the nurse who plays an incredibly important role in Rabbi Lazowski's survival. She first appears in his story around seven minutes into the interview, but you'll hear about her two more times, and it's truly amazing. Rabbi Lazowski, Mrs. Rabinowitz, and everyone he talks about, they demonstrate that we can, even in the most extreme circumstances, choose to act in ways that affirm life and connection and love. May this remembrance teach us. And the last words to my mother was, I want you to live. Mm. I want you to tell the world what transpired here and remember to be somebody in this world. by Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. I have a very special guest today, Rabbi Philip Lazowski. Rabbi Lazowski was my childhood rabbi. He has a tremendous amount to do with my choosing to become a rabbi. Throughout my childhood, he modeled warmth and love and just in, in both a metaphorical and a very physical way, an embrace of me and my entire family. And I'm so delighted that he's here with us today. He has a long list of accomplishments. The synagogue in which I grew up was Congregation Beth Hillel in Bloomfield, Connecticut. So he served as the rabbi there for many, many decades. And he's now emeritus rabbi at Congregation Emmanuel right nearby in West Hartford. And in addition to his congregational work, he has served as the chaplain of the Connecticut Senate, the chaplain of Hartford Hospital, and he just retired after 55 years of service as a chaplain to the Connecticut State Police. Rabbi Lazowski, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. I wanted to ask you to come on to this show for our podcast dedicated to Yom HaShoah, to the Holocaust uh, Remembrance Day, because I have been inspired throughout my life by your extraordinary story, um, by the story itself, your background, and, and also by the life that you've created for yourself. So 
I'd like to begin by sh- uh, asking you to share your story with our listeners to talk about, um, you know, where you were born and if you want to talk a little bit about your life before the Shoah and then to tell the story about how you survived. And you know that there's a particular story that I'd like you to tell. So do you want to begin? Well, I would like to tell you my story of survival. I was the firstborn son of my family with four boys and one girl. When the Germans came to our town, Belitsa, which is near Vilna, I was 11 years old. It was in 1941. Most of the village, including our home, was burned as soon as the Germans came in into town because there was a fight between the Russians and the Germans. When they burned our home, we went to live with our grandparents where the home was not burned. And then, of course, the Germans started how to kill the Jews. So first, they devised all methods of torture, such as running the gunplet. They first killed the the intelligentsia, the brightest and most respected members of the community, including our beloved rabbi, Shabtai Fine. Then they took all the gold, the silver, and the diamonds, whatever the Jews possessed, and they took hostages with the intentions of obtaining even more of our possession. And then they killed them. Within a few months, we were forced to relocate into another ghetto, which is called Gentio. Well, the conditions were subhuman, very crowded, filthy, and missing the basics like food, water, and toilets. All our seven were on one room. So we had many good Christian friends, and they came to advise us that the killing in other ghettos started. So we built a hidden cave. Since I was the oldest child, I offered to conceal the entrance of the cave after the family was safely inside. And I find myself in a selection line in the marketplace where I was part of a procession of people with pallid faces and frightened hearts encompassed by sheer panic. We were surrounded by Nazis, withdrawn bayonets, and the Jews cried out agony almost reached the heavens. A woman was feeding a baby while standing in the line among the thousands of Jews there. And a Nazi came with the bayonet and pierced the baby and threw it like a football. Uh, And people were scared in their souls and wounded in their spirits and damaged in their attitudes. And then the selection began. The Nazis were masters of deception. They used euphemism to cover their intentions. Jews were told they were being sent to work centers. In reality, they were being sent to the slaughterhouse. We were assembled in the marketplace to be sent to this selection 
where they put us to death. And then, of course, they began choosing. They were choosing, like, for instance, men that are capable of hard work and those who could be used to the Nazis, such as doctors and nurses. And I stood in line waiting to be sent to the death. And, um, but in the meantime, I was looking for if they found the cave of my family. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't find anybody from that I know. So uh, I went over to a few people and asked them if they're going to take me as their son. And not everybody said uh, that um, we have our own children. And then I uh, went over to a lady that uh, she was holding a certificate that she's a nurse. And and she said to me, uh, if they want to let me live with two children, you can stand by and maybe they'll let me live with three children. Mm-hmm. Well, she went over and, uh, and showed the certificates. And of course, since she noticed the man who made with a finger right and left, this Nazi, sent us to life. Mm. Well, uh, her face was uh, glow with graciousness uh, when she said, um, if it let me live with two young children, they would let me live with three. Mm. I took her arm. And she showed the certificate to the Germans, and we were redirected to the left side. So, um, as a matter of fact, my uh, star of David was was ripped apart. And if the Germans saw that it was ripped apart, they would kill you right away. In her pocket was <laughs> a little thing that was able to pin me down. So she, you asked her, she said she'd try and she succeeded and then she also repaired the yellow star. Repaired my, my, my Morgan, the, the, the yellow, the yellow six star of David sign because you have to wear it from the front and the back. And the pushing was from the back all ripped. So I was fortunate enough that this lady uh, um, took me in as her son, which I, I never seen the lady before in my life mm. with the two children. And I thanked her kindly after, and I asked for her name, and she told me her name is Rabinowitz. I raced back to um, back to the fate of my family. Suddenly I saw four bodies lying near my house and my hands and feet numbed, and a wave of dizziness swamped me, and I collapsed. As I walked, I saw my mother standing next to me. Was this my imagination, or was this real? Lo and behold, it was real. Mother embraced me so tightly that i never forgotten that moment in my life. Accidentally, I, um, a few weeks passed by, and I looked out of the window and immediately recognized the lady who saved my life, mm. walking with one of her daughters. 
I cried out to my mother, Mother, look, this is the lady who saved my life. And my mother went out and blessed her and thanked her for doing such a noble thing. Within a few months, the Juden reign. Juden reign means final massacre began. No one is to be left alive. Father was not with us. He had gone to work that morning, and once again we entered the cave. We were there five days, cramped in darkness. We were discovered. The sun was blinding after so many days in the cave. And Mother said, if you can save yourself, try, because this looks like the end. Hmm. One of my brothers, Robert, snuck away to hide in the house while they were searching a mother for valuables she didn't have. I hid myself in the garden under a small bush while my face buried in the earth. I could hear everything that was going on. They took mother and the children away to a place unknown. I picked myself up and went to look for father while approaching the place where father worked. A huge dog began to bark ferociously, attracting attention of the Nazis. And suddenly I was apprehended. They brought me to a kino, which means the movie house, mm -hmm. where the rest of the Jews from Roundup awaited their fate to be slaughtered. Well, inside the movie house, I discovered mother and my two brother and a sister, because one of the brothers, they were shot in the back while I was running. Mm. Well, the conditions were abominable. These two days, no food, no place where to go to the bathroom. And suddenly the trucks appeared and were packed tightly full of juice, like sardines in a can, awaiting to their final destination. When the third truck arrived, mother, who was sitting on the second floor, uh, took her chair and pushed her out of the window. And the last words from her was, I want you to live. Mm. I want you to tell the world what transpired here and remember to be somebody in this world. Mm. Maybe the world someday need you. Then another mother threw out another boy who fell right next to me. He was nine years old. And lying there for a while, we realized that everything is quiet. They took away the people. So we start. I said to myself, where shall I go? I didn't know where to go. Mother said to live. So I went back to the ghetto not realizing that the people were robbing all the homes. Oh, boy. Since uh, uh, somebody was carrying a big chest, and I said to him, can I help you? Oh, he says, by all means, help me. And I asked him in Russian, uh, do, you, uh, do you know there's any more Jews left over here? Oh, he says, no, finished. Oh. And he Jews someplace else? Oh, yes, he says. In the Voritz, there are 10,000 Jews who are building 
a airfield. So I helped him to carry some of the furniture and he then realized that uh, I am <laughs> that I am a Jew. So uh, even though I ripped off my uh, uh, my yellow stars, yeah. and he said to me, "Wait a while over here with your boy, your friend there. I'll come right back." I says, "If I, we, if you leave this your furniture with your wagon, somebody else will take it." And I realized he wanted to get the Germans, yeah. the Nazis. So we made a dash and we ran into the corn to camouflage ourselves because um, uh, the corn was so high and we were so small in size. And by the way, the boy's name was Abe Goldstein. He was nine years old. Well, I started to walk. Then while the night is approaching, I said, maybe we should rest here next to the road there was a little forest so I went in the forest I had a little jacket that spread on the on the ground he lay down nine year old kid he was so tired he fell asleep I couldn't sleep a whole night mm-hmm. I was marching back and forth and um, then in the morning where we get up I said I woke him up. He says, the sun is coming up. Let's get going. Well, we came back to Dvoretz. First of all, on the way, they wrapped us, took off our shoes. The boy was crying because he had to go barefooted in the the, uh, dirt. He was running blood. But most of all, mother gave him a couple hundred um, dollars to buy a piece of bread. But... uh, uh, they took away the shoes and the money wasn't this. Yes, so he started to cry. He says, don't worry about the money as long as you're alive. Mm-hmm. Then a feeling of panic overtook me as barbed wire surrounded the ghetto. I thought this would be the end. But as soon as he passed the barbed wire, a cousin of his stood by and he recognized him. And he says, hey, Billy, you still alive? Come with me, and he embraced him and took away. Mm. I, as an orphan, um, they took me the Judenrat there in Dvoritz, and they put me in a place where all the, the orphans were. Mm-hmm. Well, I went into the orphan place. I found my brother, Robert. Oh. Oh. So life in the ghetto was um, horrible. Mm. No food, no mother, no father, filthy conditions orphans scrambling to stay alive. After a time, the good news came that my father was alive because when I went to work, people knew us quite well. I let them know that two sons are still alive in the ghetto at Forest. So my father was too weak and sick, so he sent over my uncle and another man and took us out from Dvoritz. Two weeks before the massacre of the 10,000 people took place in Dvoritz after mm-hmm. they the finished building the airfield. Well, we came to the woods, to the many family groups who were struggling to survive and fight the Nazi oppression. The story of the Jewish underground, as I know it, and lived it at the age of 12, 
dealt with various manifestations of courage and heroism. It is a story of faith, of self-sacrifice, and superhuman endurance. Well, we were in the woods for two and a half years. The Jew survived because we're able to develop the spiritual stamina to suffer the rigorous of mere contrived existence in the barest marginal terms in this bloody war. A lot of them unfortunately died 50 below zero, froze to death. People died of starvation. People died of sickness, didn't have enough food to survive, etc. We always were the victims. Well, the Partisans did a lot of good things for to winning the war that most of the people don't know. They burned all the bridges. They mined all the railroads that couldn't pass by from Germany to the front. So we suffered because we didn't have any ammunition. And as a family group, we did not fight. We only went begging for food for the little villages that we knew next to our town. We were able to survive because we built a cave. We were 12 people in one cave Mm. for weeks and sometimes close to a month we couldn't get out because if we get out during the winter time, the marking you'd of leave, our feet you'd leave tracks. Would, you'd leave tracks. Yes, yeah. would lead us. So we only went out to beg food during a storm or a big winter uh, snow would fall. Yeah. Otherwise, we had to live on dry uh, beans for weeks. We couldn't make a fire during the day, only at night, because during the day the smoke can be seen for a while. At night, we built something to hide the fire, etc. How did you learn that the war was over? Oh, yes. The partisans used to stop in at times on their mission because they were Jewish partisans. Mm -hmm. In 1943, they organized. And there were a lot of the Jewish partisans that helped a lot of the Jewish families. So uh, what happened was... When they stopped in, we were listening what they have to say, and they always brought us some food, etc. And they were able to um, to tell us. In the meantime, we heard at night. We put our ears to the earth. We could hear the big guns booming. Mm-hmm. So we knew that the front is. Uh, coming closer and closer back uh, to uh, to us. And then, of course, what happened was we found out that the Germans were running into the woods while we were in the woods. Mm. And then we realized that we better get out from the woods wow. because the Russians occupied. So you were liberated by the Russians, and it was your father and your brother and you? Right. Wow. My brother and my father and I were liberated. Wow. Then the first thing, we went to visit 
the grave of my mother and the rest of the family, yeah. which was a thousand um, people in one grave yeah. in Jatel. And then we went back to our village that we were born, and the people looked at us and says, quote, you're still alive? Yeah. And then we realized that there's no place for us to stay in this bloody land. So uh, we were able to manage to to go to Poland, and from Poland, because where we were occupied were by the Russians, and then it became Belarus. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a proclamation that anybody who is a Polish citizen can go to Poland if they wish. So we were asked to Poland, and our aim was to go to Palestine. Mm -hmm. But at that time, there was no Palestine yet. So we wanted to go on a ship, uh, on a boat, I mean, that would take us to Palestine. But then they caught the boat and they put all the people in Cyprus. Mm -hmm. So we didn't go with the boat anymore. We were waiting. Then father found out that uh, he has two sisters and a brother, and they found out that we are alive. Uh, it wasn't the Jewish uh, newspaper that uh, all the people who survived and they saw our name. So we went, uh, they took us to the United States. His family in America brought you over? Right. Right. His family brought us over, and I was at that time 17 years old. And I always tried to obey mother's wish to be somebody and tell the story. Right. So I didn't have any money, so I worked at night, three o'clock at night, to help load 90 pounds of cans of frozen eggs to bring to the bakeries. Wow. While in the bakeries, I used to always daven in the morning and put on that film, and the fellow who drove the truck said to the other uh, truck drivers when they stopped for breakfast, this Bojical there is very good helper, but every time something is wrong with him, he tests his pulse ah. or he does something to his... I see his winding is, is something on his hand. Probably something is wrong with him. That's very funny. You were in New York at the time, right? In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, so... so I, I finished three or four o'clock in the afternoon, and I went to high school, to Thomas Jefferson High School, to learn um, English and, of course, to graduate high school. I graduated high school in a year and a half. Wow. And then I was accepted to Brooklyn College, and then I went to the Yeshiva University Teachers Institute to want to become a principal of the school. Mm -hmm. So I went... In the morning, I went to the Shiva University um, Teachers Institute, and then in the afternoon, I used to teach Hebrew in the in the Hebrew school, and at night, I used to go to Brooklyn College. Mm -hmm. So I remember one day, they give the test, and finishing the test in the middle, I fall asleep, oh. and, it, and the teacher said to me, you know, you have to get a little bit more rest yeah. because that was the end of the week and I used to sleep only three, four hours a night, a day. 
Anyway, I graduated from Teacher Institute, and I went to the Yeshiva University. And what happened was this. While I was in Yeshiva University, one of our students got married. So he invited the whole class. I didn't want to go, but he said, you know, it's not befitting not to go with the rest of your friends. So I went to the wedding, and sitting to the wedding, uh, next they put on the young people uh, together, and next to me was a little lady, a girl, and um, I didn't know how to dance because I never danced in my life. So I was sitting talking to her, and she said to me, Philip, uh, where you come from? I said, oh, you wouldn't know. I come from a little town, Belize. Oh, she said, Belize, guess what? My girlfriend told me that I was over there this week, and mother told me that she saved her boy from Belize, and she doesn't know his name. However, she doesn't know even his life. When she heard this, so she said, how did they save the boy? And she told me this story. When she finished telling her story, she says, I'm the boy. Where's the family live? They live in Hartford, Connecticut. So I went down, and I called right away, and it was the lady that answered the phone. And the lady said, who's calling? I said, that's the boy that you saved yeah. the life. Did you, you recognized but, her voice? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've heard this story more se- several times, and I cry every time I hear it, Rabbi. It's just an amazing story. So keep going, because so, it gets even better. So I... Uh, I went over to see the family because I had my cousins living in Boston. So on the way back, all the way in the middle, I used to stop in to say hello. Well, as a poor boy, I used to be a waiter in the Pioneer Country Club in in the Catskills. So, and she was not far away. She had a, a aunt living in Catskills, and we get to know each other. Uh, and uh, and that's what happened. Uh, that uh, I uh, I married this older daughter. She was seven at that time, and I was eleven. So that just so, to take the listeners back, that this this unbelievable scene that you described earlier, that you were in the selection and you approached this woman who was standing there with two children. And they were, and they were both girls. And now, miraculously, you've all survived the war, and and you fall in love. Well, I didn't know that they survived yeah. it, but I always asked. As a matter of fact, guess what? The boy Abe Goldstein. Yeah. That yeah. I saved his life. Yeah. I didn't know that he's alive. Every time I used to go to Israel, I used to leave the name for the people. Maybe the. They know this name. Uh-huh. After 20 years or so going to Israel, somebody came over to me and said, guess what? What you're asking for, Abe Colston is alive. Wow. He is in Canada. Wow, did you... I came back to yeah. the United States. I called Canada, and he answered the phone and said, who's calling? I says, the fellow who saved your neck. Yeah. He was there for a minute. He didn't know what to say. Then I said... Are you still there? Anyway, he never told the family that he survived. Wow. That, and um, as a, when I was honored, he came to speak. Oh. 
with his wife. By the way, this guy, I, I offered him, uh, my son offered him to uh, to come to the United States and to pay for his uh, plane and uh, made arrangement to stay in the hotel, etc. He says, everything is paid, you just come. He says, don't worry, I can afford. He has 39 restaurants in Canada. Oh, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. So he came there. We are very close now. We call each other quite often. Oh, it's a good... It's... And he has, by the way, three children, all three doctors. Wow. <laughs> he must be so proud. So for the listeners to understand that I grew up in this wonderful and warm synagogue community with Rabbi Philip Lazowski and Ruth Lazowski and, and, and their three sons. And I, you know, it was just, you were just, you were my rabbi. And then it was only as I was a teenager that I began to learn your story, both the horrors that you survived and this this incredible miracle in the middle of it that Ruth's mother saved your life and then you were reunited later mm. in America and, and made a beautiful home and a beautiful community together. But this is not the end of it, you see. The end of it is that I wanted to spread the idea and that what happened, maybe you don't know the story, happened in Bluefield High School in 2006, I was invited to speak to an English department by Barbara Michelson in regards to my experience in the Holocaust. It was there that I met Dr. Joe Osaki, who was concerned that so many children did not know, nor did they understand the implications of the Holocaust and world genocide. So we began what we called the Identity Project. So. What happened was the students were a cross-section that came from different backgrounds. Some belonged to gangs, some lived with grandparents with no father or mother to guide them, and some were refugees that did not receive food because many of them did not even know the word Holocaust. I gave them a copy of my book, Fate and Destiny, and this book is a testimony of my experience as an 11-year-old working through the suffering of the Holocaust and how to survive and how to have faith and how to believe. When they read the book, there were so many questions. I was stunned at the depth of the intellectual questions the students came up with. So whoever read my book and wrote three pages report was entitled to go to the Holocaust Museum mm. in Washington, D.C. My son, Alan, from Les Parking, chartered a plane for over 120 student teachers and chaperones, and we went to visit the museum. These children were so affected by it because they knew what they were seeing. I saw students in the museum crying, and this museum had a lasting impact on their lives. They changed, ensured they had the opportunity to stop gang violence, to act individuals, and help mankind become better. Mm. For the last 12 years, I've been teaching about the Holocaust, hundreds of high schools and colleges throughout Connecticut. Well, in another state, let me be very open. I tell the schools, you do not teach ethics, you don't teach morality or understanding of humanity and compassion. All that comes 
our grades and scores in order to be admitted to best colleges. In the schools, parents often inquire whether their children are getting good grades. But about asking if they are grown up to be good people? Mm-hmm. And only by studying the past and the history of genocide can be a lasting impression and impact on future generations. It is a great opportunity to make a difference. A generation which ignores history has no past and no future. And no future. Learn. And this is what I was working now for the last four years, that they should pass a law in Connecticut. They should teach genocide and the Holocaust in all the high schools. Mm. And this year, I went to back the committee, and guess what? The committee passed it, and now it goes to the Senate, which I hope it will pass, that Connecticut will be able to teach the Holocaust and genocide in all the high schools. Wow. I mean, that's an extraordinary place to end. Rabbi Lezowski, We I talk about in this podcast about resilience, about that that in, in, out of an encounter with trauma or challenge, a way to uh, recover, a way to make meaning, a way to engage in a, a community and a conversation that's much larger than oneself. And you've just told that very story from from just absolute horror and destruction in in, in the in the worst possible well, way uh, to a life of you meaning. You know, uh, you probably already know that. Acts of racism and anti-Semitism, hatred and bigotry on the rise, not only in Connecticut, but throughout our country and in Europe as well. In 2017 alone, anti-Semitic incidents have increased by 57%, the largest single-year increase on record. It's only through education and training that we can and these acts of hatred and prejudice. It is proven that Holocaust and genocide education changes the lives of those both young and old who have had the chance to experience this. So by not doing anything, we let people listen to so many people saying that uh, Holocaust never existed. And uh, there are so many people who say that while we are still alive and we are proof of it, mm-hmm. what happens in right. four or five years that we will be no more right. around, that there will be no living Holocaust survivor, they will say, ha, show me proof. Right. That is why it's so important that we teach about the Holocaust and uh, that people write down their stories. Right. I promised my mother that I will tell the world. So while we're going to college, I wrote this book. Well, I didn't write it for uh, to sell a book and all this. I wrote it for my children to know where I come from. Well, so the most important question that I want to ask you is, I'm not certain I ever knew the, the last thing that your mother said to you. And I, I hope you live with the awareness that you've lived a life to make her so proud. You took those words so to heart. 
And I, I mm-hmm. think I want to ask two questions. What yeah. is, in, in, as a rabbi, what are the most important things that you want to communicate to the people who come into contact with you? Well, most important thing for me is to have the resiliency to spread the word what Judaism is all about. It is so important not to stand idle by and see how people can take advantage of others. You have to go out and make the Jewish people feel that you are part of Judaism, Mm -hmm. that you're part of humanity that survived for so many years in all the pogroms and in all the massacres that took place, yet they had the faith and the stamina to survive because they believed in something. We Jews must believe that we are Jews. Israel, Israel, a Jew, even he sins, is still a Jew. No matter what he does, no matter what he didn't do, I don't believe in uh, belong to this organization, that organization, to the right, to the left. We don't care. We must make feel that every Jew, whatever he believes, that's his business, but he's still a Jew. Uh, I agree completely. And, and you you did that so magnificently when, when I was a child. I I felt like the synagogue was my home, and I felt like, you know, it was your house, and you just, I, I remember when I was little, I would run and I would give you a hug because, you know, I was just so well, happy the, to see you. The house has to be open yeah, to everybody. Right. The synagogue, if they want to come, it's open. If they want to come, but it's still Jew. And when we care of one another, unity is strength. Yeah. You see, it is so important for us to be together, to act together, to feel together. Otherwise, by yourself, you are a single fellow in loneliness. Yes. We need community. Yes. We need Jews. Yes. I, it's what I, one thing that feels so important to me that, that it's both a, a horizontal connection. It's all the people who are living alongside of me. And then it's also this, this vertical connection of all the people who came before me and mm-hmm. all the people who come after. And that sustains me every day, that experience of community. Well, What's your second question? My second question is, uh, so this will be our, our last question. Um, what's, the, what's the piece of wisdom, what's the chokhmah that you would want to share with our listeners about being part of the Jewish people? What's, what's a piece of Torah you want to pass on? Well, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 16, it states, Thou shall not stand idle by when the blood of your neighbor is being spilled. You see, the world turned its back on its responsibility. We as Jews must stick together. Um, for the Jews in Europe, there was no escape. All the doors were closed to them. The Red Sea did not open, as did in Egypt. The most important decision, Albert Einstein once said, we make is whether we believe to live in a friendly or hostile universe, we have choices to eradicate hate from our world or keep hating for no reason. So 
if we want to live in a peaceful world, we must act now. Don't be a bystander. Uh. Give a helping hand to humanity. Uh. Give a helping hand to your neighbor. Give a helping hand to your community. That is Judaism. Litakein olam. To make this world a better place. Yes, yes. Oh, Rabbi Lizowski, thank you so much for this conversation and for sharing your story. And um, I'm just, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You can find more resources on this topic on reconstructingjudaism.org and on ritualwell.org. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashi Venu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience.